Hey there, everyone. It's uh, David Barnett from davidcbarnett.com, the blog site, YouTube channel, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, and others podcasts where I talk about buying, selling, financing, small and medium-sized businesses. Today, I've got Richard Wilson, who's joining me from familyoffices.com. And uh, I had Richard come and join us here on the main YouTube channel because Richard was actually the expert guest um, discussion every month in the Business Buyer Adventure group coaching program. I have a, a guest come in who's an expert to talk about something to do with deal making or managing small businesses. And Richard and I had about an hour long conversation talking about raising private capital, either debt or equity financing from private investors. I wanted to have him come back to talk with us on the main YouTube channel um, a little bit about what he does, but then also about how the relationships and everything that are so important in that industry are being affected by, by the lockdown situation that's been going on. So Richard, why don't we start off? Uh, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit and, and give us an idea about how you, how you got into this and who these people are that interact with your organization? Yeah, sure. So um, in 2007, I started the Family Office Club, and we really set out to provide thought leadership on the ultra-wealthy investment segment. So these are families that some might be worth $5, 10000000 million, but a lot of them are worth 20 50 75000000 million. And those types of families buy a lot of businesses. They invest directly in real estate. And what they find is that their wealth advisor is not equipped to help them with that. Their wealth advisor wants to put them in stocks and bonds on a platform that's point click and prints out a nice report. They don't have to go due diligence anything. And they're essentially just salespeople these days to put into portfolios that are ran by a whole team of analysts somewhere. And so that gap in the market allowed us to build the family office club as the word family office started getting used more and more over the last decade to describe the ultra wealthy and how they invest. And so what we do is we have 120 investors that are looking for investments and we place capital into uh, deals. It's their capital. We just get a little percentage of the profits they earn off of investments they do through us. But we have 2000 investors total that are registered with the family office club and come to our virtual discussion panels, come to our live events when we're hosting them. And then we have about 850 subscribers that pay a monthly fee to get access to our training on how to raise capital, how to do investor relations, et cetera. So it's, um, you know, we're always learning more about what investors are wanting and kind of what's going on in the direct investment, you know, business buying side of things. So what you just described, you know, very wealthy people going and buying things like privately controlled corporations directly. They want to buy companies and businesses. It's, it sort of describes what a lot of other people talk about when they're talking about people pursuing yield. You know, things like big pension funds, for example, buying airports and stuff like that. They're, they're looking for these non-publicly traded assets, which may have a very appealing yield, but they're, they get into a world of illiquidity, don't they? Right. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, when you invest in a publicly traded company, the valuation of the company has gone up significantly. And when family offices invest, some of them buy companies with 10, 20, 30 million of EBITDA and profits, but a lot of them are buying companies with half a million in profits, two million in profits, and it's below the private equity radar. So if you're publicly traded, it's at maximum efficiency. Hmm. You know, um, if you are doing 10, 15, 20 million in EBITDA, it's a pretty efficient market. A lot of people want to buy you. But if yeah. you're a company doing especially less than three million in profits a year, um, there's not a lot of people that want to buy you. And if you're doing less than a, a million, you know, very few that are sophisticated. So every time you get to that other level, 
there's a higher valuation multiple if there's more people fighting to buy you. And so I think that um, that's something that a lot of family offices realize they aggregate assets and then sell them to private equity or just aggregate and keep it for the cash flow. Yeah. And in our, in our prior interview, what we talked about is how a business buyer, for example, could go looking to some of these people as investors to participate in one of these acquisitions that, that maybe someone has found. Right. Um, yep. Your business is driven in a really big way by relationship. Why don't we touch a little bit about that, about how important it is, the relationship between these family offices and the people who maybe have a deal to propose or a partnership to offer or whatnot. Right. Yeah, what we've found is that when people start raising capital for a deal, especially if it's their first deal, they think that the deal is most important. So they worry about the pitch deck, the metrics, what the returns will be, their financial model. And they put a lot of emphasis on the deal and the amount of money somebody could make. But when we talk to our investors, what they worry about most is whether they can trust the team. Is it a high conviction strategy? Do they understand the context around the deal? And they don't care at all about the returns until they have trust in the team. And then they're only going to invest with people they really trust and they like and they understand how they add value, which is very few people out of everyone that contacts them. Um, and so then it comes down to, okay, well, out of the people we know and trust and like, who has a strategy that really resonates with where we think the world is going and that'll reduce it a little bit more. And then it's just a handful of people that are going to pass those screens really. So I think just investing energy and building trust and showing your commitments and, you know, sharing expertise and adding genuine value is more important than saying, Hey, we're going to double your money or triple your money on this investment. And thinking that's what's going to get them to invest. They're really looking for someone that they can invest in is what you're saying. Right. Yep. Yeah. yeah. They're really investing and trusting in you, you know, more so than the company. Now in your normal flow of business, you know, pre COVID-19, your organization did a lot of live events throughout the year. Can you describe right. the kind of stuff that would happen at these events? I know that there are some panels and you record some of these people for your own podcast, which, which I've listened to and, and some big insights definitely in that podcast. Um, can you describe sort of the setup and flow of a lot of these events that you do? Yeah, sure. So we do two types of events. We do a workshop, which is a fast moving five and a half hours of content. And then we have a lunch break um, of how to raise capital, how to do investor relations, and just 30 different strategies per day in those workshops. Now, you know, luckily we have HD recorded, you know, about 20 live events. So we have a ton of, you know, hundred plus hours of content in the in the portal, but the, uh, the workshops are one type and it's fast moving, lots of advice. The other type of events is an investor summit and we get 30 investors on stage to all share an insight on um, how they're investing, what they're looking for, and they all share what their mandates are too. Usually in a discussion panel format, with five investors on a panel, a couple of standalones. And, you know, the lessons that we share, like on interviews like this, come from hosting 130 of those live events and having a mm -hmm. thousand investors on stage. Uh, and we shared some of that within your private training area, kind of what some of those, some of those insights are uh, just like building a relationship before hard pitching the, the numbers of the deal. But that's, that's one thing that we see as unique, kind of like your position, you know, your focus is different than most people's. I think that's why you've attracted a following because um, you're in a niche area you know, like us, you get that kind of view of the forest of what's working and you start learning from what's going on within the ecosystem you've created and the learning just accelerates over time because of that. 
Well, it's interesting because I've listened to your podcast where you had a couple of these discussion panels with, you know, five or six members at the front of a room. And I found it very interesting because at the beginning of, of one of these recordings, each one described the mandate of their organization. So one guy was saying, right. you know, we invest in strip malls in the Midwest. And another person was saying, we invest in mixed use properties in Canada and the US. And, you know, they're all kind of describing what it is they look for. And it just made me realize that, you know, just like when you have a, a business for sale, finding the right buyer and seller to fit together to do the deal. It's if that buyer then is looking for an investor to help them, it's almost like they've doubled the complexity of their operation because now they have to fit in with their investor the same way they're going to fit in with the seller. Right. Right. You know? Yeah, for sure. It's all about connecting. And um, I think one thing to realize is that usually we have, um, you know, a couple hundred investors on stage. Now it's a couple hundred investors in our discussion panels that are virtual or the daily interviews we do with investors. And none of them are paid to do the interview. They're all being interviewed because they want to get deal flow. They yeah. want deals to come towards them. And so there's, there's family offices out there. They're hungry for, investing and you know using the word co-investing can be a word that can attract the investor and say oh we're going to co-invest with you you know into this deal and maybe they could be effectively an advisory board member or board member to the company and help it grow faster i mean that's the best type of investor to get someone who can open the door at costco or you know give you strategic advice on how to get distribution or grow sales or reduce costs etc so when we're talking about a private investor, we're talking about somebody who's going to come in with a buyer potentially on a deal. Um, and they could take one of several forms. They could become an equity investor and become one of the owners with the buyer, or they could lend money. There's probably loans that get made too through some of these, some of these connections. Um, what I've also thought, you know, since our interview is kind of a, a, a strength here, is that somebody could find an investor who themselves bring additional resources, experience, et cetera, to the particular deal. Um, the, the investor could end up bringing far more than just cash. Could you give us any examples of, of that kind of thing that you may have uh, heard about or seen? Yeah, sure. So uh, we've got one investor who bought seven manufacturing companies on the same day and kind of rolled them up and create like a platform company. And if somebody came to him with an aerospace manufacturing opportunity or something, a CNC machining or something, you know, he could add a lot of value to that. We also have a client that's uh, sold 130 T-Mobile stores. They grew that up and they knew how to scale that business. Uh, and they've had an exit now. We have another client who has, um, you know, built up a large advertising media business, but they charge their clients on a performance basis for results. And they're, they're worth a hundred million plus because of that. And so I think that we have smaller clients too. They're worth two or 3 million. But the point is that when you have such big results in an area, there's so many things you had to learn and get right along the way that they could be a good, well, you know, help round out kind of a advisory board, but also they might be able to help very specifically with key performance indicators and tracking KPIs and growing a team, which might be a critical component of just about any company that's scaling is a team management part uh, or with financing that they had to do while, you know, growing so rapidly, et cetera, or, or the niche area of expertise, of course. So that, that, that would be one way. Also made me think when you were talking that uh, sometimes an investor will help bring on other investors and, you know, that, that would be something they bring in addition to their own cash that might bring other people's cash. Okay. Um, you know, 
in the live events that I've attended, different seminars and you know workshops and conferences and things like that, there are the sort of scheduled events, but a, a tremendous amount of the value comes from meeting that new friend, uh, you know, at the cocktail hour or at the breakfast table or you know it, it, the sort of the in between times when you bump into people and, and open up conversations. How effective do you think? Um, sort of virtual sessions are going to be to help create some of these productive relationships. Do you think there's something lost moving from live to virtual? Yeah, there's definitely something lost, but I'll tell you the average person doesn't put a lot of effort into consuming digital assets. We've found that the average person will watch like a webinar once a week, look at a couple of mandates, get distracted. Um, it's just human nature not to want to stare at a computer screen for eight hours. Uh, so we know that, you know, we produce a lot of digital investor interviews and record events and we can see that people logging in and we've got you know, a lot of people logging in every day, but at the same time, I get a feeling from the feedback that they, they like the, the live events and a very specific webinar on their niche and a very specific resource. But I think very few people are really digging in and rolling up their sleeves and saying, okay, I'm in this virtual environment. Right. It's going to take more proactive work on my part to find the investors who sit on stage, they're invested in exactly what I do, and then doing that extra proactive follow-up to make those connections versus random happenstance, oh, when I was getting a cup of coffee, I met someone. So I feel like um, that's the reality, I think, in the, with virtual assets any, anywhere. And But the other reality is that people aren't used to that. So the, the people who can adjust to that more proactively are going to get better results than those who just kind of sit back and like, you're not going to bump anyone into anyone at your home office. Right. So. Are, are you trying to say that opportunity sometimes looks like work? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> not always. Yeah. If, if it doesn't, and it came to you through a LinkedIn Daisy chain investment banker, then yeah, be careful. <laughs> All right. Um, so, I mean, you, you speak to a lot of people who, who have a lot of money and a lot of people who are in the midst of doing deals with these family offices. Um, on Twitter, I've started to refer to our current situation as the COVID recession, because while the numbers are just starting to come out now, actual you know, measured details from government statistics organizations about the number of people who've been laid off and the decline in economic activity, we are without a doubt in a recession. I mean, you can't just shut down whole parts of the economy and not right. end up in recession. What sort of prognostications or predictions are people starting to say in your circles? Um, a lot of them have only put 10 to 20% of their money back in the public market because they feel like um, maybe not in June, they feel like by July and August that things are going to drop more in the stock market and real estate will finally reprice you know, July, August, September, because I think a lot of real estate people are just hoping that things will magically just get better at the snap of a finger, that mm -hmm. their assets really didn't just drop, you know, 10 or 20% in value. And maybe for some people they did not. Um, but I also think that Q1 earnings reports, you know, it was only half of a bad quarter and then all the stimulus came out. So when there's a full bad quarter, even if more stimulus comes out, it's just going to be, going to be harsh, I think, on, on the stock market and general sentiment. There'll be a lot of bad news and more bankruptcies. And so we'll see how much stimulus the government comes out with. Um, it seems like right now they're just trying to push opening up business, but a lot of people are being cautious 
you know, like Warren Buffett hasn't made a big purchase yet. He's sitting on 130 billion in cash. And I think a lot of people are just kind of making sure that there's not going to be a second drop that feels kind of artificially inflated in the public markets, at least right now. Yeah. My, my sentiment is that the, uh, let's call them government sympathies, you know, all the different government attempts to aid and assist and help businesses survive um, are only going to have a certain lifespan. They can't be doing this a year from now. Right. Right. And so it'll only be after those interventions eventually come to an end that we'll really be able to measure what has happened to the the actual economy. Um, And that's when things like publicly traded stocks will be able to price in the, the, the actual news uh, right. Because I think it's it's all very opaque right now. You know, there's there's a cloudiness to it. I mean, you you can have businesses which suddenly have access to all this. You know, maybe government backed loans. They got money to pay their bills. Their suppliers think that everything is fine. It's only right. when that that cash stops and people say, "Look, I can't pay my bill," that the the real measured effect of this crisis is going to be seen. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So some people are just getting their PPP loans now. Some might not get the actual money in their bank account, you know, until maybe June 1st, the latest probably. But a lot of people got funded in late April, mid-April. And so if you think of when that eight-week period starts, then people are going to say, well, you know, your job's got extended for that long, but now you're better off going on unemployment, getting paid, or we just can't afford you anymore. We're going to cut back things now. Uh, so it hasn't recovered after that eight weeks, then, you know, that gets us to late July or August at the latest. And it happens to be when Q2 reports are going to come out from all the publicly traded companies. And, you know, you hear some big names going bankrupt already. But um, that just means more opportunity for those of you buying a business because capital, even if your company is not distressed, investors are more worried. So the thing is that companies are having trouble getting capital they need and they know it's a hard time to sell a business and they might have three sources of income and one or two might've dried up. So they might be willing to sell their business to you for 1 million versus 1.3 million, Mm. maybe what they wanted in December last year, or they might be willing to, you know, sell to you for 900,000 and carry a $200,000 note over three years or something. Um, And it might be more open to terms that they wouldn't have before. So we've been trying to buy a piece of intellectual property for $350,000 for three or four years now, they wanted to sell it for 950,000. They came down to 650 before the crisis. Well, now we're trying to get them down to that 350 number here during the crisis. We also have a company that hasn't been largely affected by the crisis. They're just bumping along at a half a million dollars a year in revenue. And we've known them for four years. And we reached out and said, well, would you sell? And they said, well, we weren't looking to sell, but we could use that money elsewhere right now to take advantage of the crisis and mm. in our core business. So this ancillary business, they're willing to sell off at just a decent multiple, not super rich, not super cheap, but they're more willing to do any type of deal versus before because they have exciting opportunities where they could see expansion. So, it, you know, intellectual property can be one thing to acquire a company that hasn't been affected, obviously a company that's growing and is small but exciting to grow even further in case there's more virus lockdowns in the future. There's lots of additional opportunities because of all this, even though there's additional challenges as well. Yeah. What, what I'm seeing is, um, is a lot of excitement on the part of buyers towards <clears throat> the idea that there should be a lot of improved opportunities. Um, right. A lot of the people on the other side of the table, though, are still kind of stuck uh, at this moment with 
you know, the idea of what their business would have been worth in February. And right. what has actually started to, to, I've actually started to see in deals that I've consulted on are sellers agreeing to seller financing notes, et cetera, with payments being contingent upon a return of activity back to the 2019 levels. So, so it's like, you know, I'm pretty sure this is the business that you're getting because this is what it did in 2019, but right now it's not. So, so right. when it evolves back into that, then, you know, the balance will be paid kind of thing. But again, moving into a complete unknown about what exactly is going to happen, it makes it difficult. And I know yeah. I, was, I was talking with someone in commercial real estate the other day, and he was talking about a, a, a building owner who has a bunch of restaurants as tenants. Some are going to reopen, some are not. But the ones who reopen are going to have reduced capacity. Those businesses right. will never be able to pay the rents they were paying. Yeah. And so the decision now on the landlord's part is, do you accept a lower level of return uh, rent, which will eventually mean your building's worth less? Yep. And then, you know, so people are thinking about that relationship, but I don't think people have fully processed that if all the buildings become worth less, worth less, what does that mean for the municipal accounts and the right. status of the government, right? And so you know, the, the ramifications of all of this have many knock-on levels that we won't see for quite a while, but it's, it's going to be a big change in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's uh, a little bit worse than most people probably think of, but also when you're negotiating a buy a purchase of a company, one way to structure something to keep in mind is a gross revenue royalties. You might be able to say, well, buy the company for 1 million flat. We'll give you a 1% gross revenue royalty for five years. So if revenue does recover, then you'll get this much. If it actually goes down, you're going to get less, which is what it should be because I'm buying your business based on it recovering. Right. Um, and then that way it balances things out and it's not a, um, a flat amount you have to pay every month or a note based on complicated math. It's just 1% of gross revenue or 3% gross revenue or whatever is fair to make the total equation work. We've done, I've invested uh, in five gross revenue royalty deals and we're, uh, negotiating one or two more, you know, right now with a, um, a food company and then one other operating business that were in the medical field as well. So I, I think that that's an, an option that most people don't consider. Mm. No, I think it's a great point. Uh, Richard, um, you had written a book at one time. I read it. I really enjoyed it. Why don't you let everyone know uh, where they can find that? Yeah, sure. So uh, we've got some books on Audible. We also have uh, free books on our website. So if you're uh, an investor and you want to learn about family offices or you just really want to focus on the ultra wealthy and raising capital, you can go to familyoffices.com. We've got a free book there uh, called The Single Family Office. And if you uh, just want to figure out the steps to raising capital, we've got a free book at capitalraising.com for that. Yeah. That, that, and that's the one that I read. I really enjoyed it. Great. Okay. Uh, Richard, uh, thank you very much for joining me today. I know it was a, it was a great talk and people are going to find it uh, very interesting and apropos to the, to the time that we find ourselves here in the middle of May, 2020. Um, and I want to wish you the best of luck. Yeah. Thanks for having me, David. Happy, happy to be here. And uh, I like what you're doing. It's I, for 13 years I've been doing this and I've, uh, I've never seen anyone with an offering like you guys have. And I think there's just a huge need. So I'm sure you'll be 10 times larger in a few years from now, we can uh, talk again. <laughs> no, no problem. Thank you very much. And yeah. for all of you guys listening out there, if you haven't already, uh, be sure to sign up for my email list. And you can find that over at the blog site, davidcbarnett.com or directly at davidcbarnettlist.com. And, uh, and we'll see you all next week. Talk to you later. Great. Take care.